0: Welcome to episode six of Ed's Not Dead. This is Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Casey Siddons. I'm right
1: next to
2: you,
0: mm-hmm. which yeah. I'm excited about, and of course, Mr. Peter Crable. Hey,
2: man, when am I going to get to go second? By the way, I'm always, true, I'm always right? third. I'm sorry,
0: so I thought about not so, that. That's so cool. Okay, and I think last time I. And one time you forgot me, I yeah, think. It's, you it's, know. A, it's a pattern. And I did call Mr. Siddons the one and only last time. That's
1: <laughs> true. Well, I am, it's, I mean, uh, there are not, there's not another Casey Siddons.
2: I'm writing all this down in my book, by the way.
0: My notepad. My, my moleskin notepad. <laughs> That's right. All right, we have uh, another epic show this week. It's going to be awesome. Which I am really excited about. I know you guys are too, but let's first start with our Twitter, Twitter handles. You can reach me at rwdodd. At
1: CH Siddons
0: and at Peter Crable. All right. Today is a big day because we are going to be interviewing Curtis Linton. The it's rena- awesome. Yeah. The renowned social justice av- uh, a- activist who has um, written extensively about equity, worked with school systems. And schools and improving equity and excellence in schools. So we are very excited to have Curtis and that he's agreed to come on. Ed's not dead. Yeah. And Mr. Sids, thank you because you made this happen.
1: I connected with him yes. and I messaged him endlessly to get him on here. Yeah.
2: The best part is you go, how do you get guests on, man? Kids
0: goes, I emailed him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I asked them via wow. email. Yeah. So <laughs> <Who> we're <knew? laughs> we're excited to have Curtis on. Okay, uh, this is the part of the show where. We get really uncomfortable because Casey has feedback uh, for us on the show. What do, I, yeah. what do you What do you have?
1: I just got a text for feedback today, and, and um, it's from Mr. Patterson, who okay. was mentioned last week and the week before that. And so far, he's on a three week binge of being on our show. Is he
0: troll? <laughs> is he trolling us still? Little, uh, well, not
1: us, but you. So uh, he said, he said, "Good episode, you guys." Should I read it in like an old man's voice or yeah. just good episode, you guys? Number five was best yet, though I have to say, I'm not quite sold on the sincerity behind Robbie's bit about the finest educator. <laughs> Come on. The week before, he was disparaging me and the whole counseling profession, and I can only ask why. Okay, do, do at least part of it in, in the old man. I'm soon sending out a list of the ten things I recommended. In my much heralded, if somewhat lengthy, emails to him that all proved to be the best strategies... But we're often Okay, ignored. that is what
0: I, I do. Not care that much about his
3: and feedback. mocked that later. Now that long. would be a
1: good subject matter for you. All right. Well, he actually went on for another that whole text message. Yeah, that's <laughs> a lot of, that's, that's I, a I, email.
0: I thought I had righted the ship with Mister Patterson when I <laughs> referred to him as one of the best educators I had ever known.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, he, yeah, okay. he, he did. I, I thought you did, but he's clearly holding on to it. He's retired, so okay, he's yeah, nervous he about gonna it. Do? Uh, yeah. We
0: would we would like to do a spontaneous call on Mr. Patterson and catch him off guard and get him on the show. That would be awesome. Yeah,
2: I think so, it kind of ruins it when you tell everyone that we're going to yeah. do okay. a spontaneous I'm sorry. call. Sorry, yeah. all right,
0: okay, we'll cut that part <laughs> Anyway, um, all right. Any other any other feedback? I did have one very positive uh, piece of feedback. Uh, Dave Flanagan said that he always feels smarter after he listens. To Ed's not dead.
3: Wow. Yeah, that's pretty. That's, that's high, awesome. That's that's yeah, high kind praise. Of the nicest thing yeah, we've heard. Say, yeah.
1: My dad hasn't listened to the show yet, but he said it's on a, on the quote front burner. Oh,
2: better than the back burner. I,
1: I've never heard that before. All right. We also
2: said we would read uh, iTunes reviews. I actually didn't look to see if anybody reviewed us. No, up. there are no okay, new you ones. Did look, okay. No, no, no. Okay.
0: All right. Anything good. else going on with you guys? How's work? Work is good. How you is know, how, how is it being an educator out there on the front lines? It's,
1: uh, we're in a we're in a great time, a challenging time, but it's a great time for it's actually, for teaching kids. Okay, yeah. that was
0: incredibly vague. Yeah, it what was do you mean? Like, give us something. Well, I mean, I mean, something. it's a great time. and a, a great, challenging time. Because put that
2: on my tombstone.
1: Because we're we're in a time, you know, politically in our world, where kids are experiencing stress and teachers are experiencing stress, and uh, although at the same time there are many opportunities to help kids. Manage through some of the changes that are going on in our world through their teaching. Yep.
0: That was more specific. That yep. was good. I have to say, when I get into schools and I see kindergartners walking down the hall, or I see teachers teaching in classrooms, I you know, you miss it. Nine, well, I'm just 99.9 percent of the time. All you have to do is get into a classroom, and it and it makes me feel good about public education. Yep. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. That's mm-hmm. true. All right. So speaking of public education, we're going to have a short conversation today about a recent piece in the Washington Post by Moriah uh, Balanchett, who uh, talked about the resegregation of public schools in Florida. And there were some things in this article that I didn't know about, one of which is that Florida was one of the first states, if not the first state in the South, to actively desegregate uh, through many different uh, structural kinds of approaches to desegregation. And they were really ahead of the curve after the Brown decision in the mid-1950s. And then apparently what is happening over time is that the schools in Florida are now progressively or increasingly resegregating. Uh, so, African American and Latino students are increasingly in schools where they are isolated, and there is racial isolation in schools. Uh, there's a quote from Gary Orfield, a scholar with the Civil Rights Project. Orfield says, What's happening is very threatening to educational equity in the United States. Uh, he cited a recent report um, by the Government Accountability Office. That called patterns of resegregation in Florida schools conclude that schools have grown more segregated since the 1990s when the Supreme Court empowered federal district judges to undo desegregation and busing orders in their communities. So, fellas, I wanted to start out with this question. What are the causes of resegregation in public schools in the U.S.? Why do you think it's happening? Who's going to take a stab at it first? Because that is a big question, and Mr. Yeah. Simmons is making well, I, scary faces.
2: Well, it is, it is, it's a scary question. And, I mean, so I'm going to start with a safe space and, and what the article kind of said and, and use the information there first. But, um, I mean, so it talks about how uh, federal judges uh, were given the power to unsegregate or, I guess, to resegregate and stop bussing. Um, sometime what was in like the early 2000s or something like that, and so as a result, I guess we've seen uh, an uptick in um, you know areas that were previously told that they had to bus in order to achieve some sort of like um, racial balance. That was in the 1990s. There you go, the 1990s. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, I, you know I was younger then, but a lot of stuff I'm like goes back to the 90s. I'm like, I thought Bill Clinton was the man. What's going on? All this stuff happening, but that's a that's a side point. <laughs> it's a different. Show. But I think it also speaks to the fact that, okay, so if we were were having to bus in the 90s in order to prevent overly segregated schools, yes, busing prevented that issue, but it doesn't solve the underlying issue, which is of neighborhoods yes, neighborhoods and areas being completely still and totally segregated. So yeah, in Florida, the article talks about- De facto segregation. Exactly. So we do have an influx um, in the Latino population when it talks about how, yes, because there's more um, Latinos in general- that that does lead to more in schools. But, you know, again, the underlying problem remains of overly
0: segregated areas that lead to overly segregated schools. So before before you jump in, I just want to give you, Mr. SIDS, a statistic. I love in, statistics. In, in 1954, the year of Brown 1, okay, 99.99% of Southern blacks were enrolled in schools that were composed of 50 to a hundred percent minority students. So at the midpoint of the 20th century, schools were almost totally segregated Mm -hmm. in the South. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you look at it in the context of the progress that was made versus that statistic, significant progress was made Uh, whether people hated busing or not. Uh, to a to a to a large degree desegregation was successful mm-hmm. so what's your take mr Sids?
1: I don't, I don't know what the solution would be if uh because when you rezone if you rezone a school district the parents in one district get or in the previous zone get upset and fight back and make that not happen Oh, and then busing also upsets parents because then they have to be bussed for 45 minutes or 30 minutes or something like that. So what is this? I don't know what the solution is. That Either there has to be some sort of almost authoritarian dictate from, I don't know, a governor or a board or something where that, you know, there, there is no community say. And there is no speaking board where, where parents can come in and complain about their, their child being bussed because it's for the common good.
0: Yeah, I mean in 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 Gameron and Long's retrospective on the Coleman report I like Gameron and Long. Have you guys read it yet? Uh, that would be no. You're supposed to send it to yeah, us. Yeah, Sorry, it. To it to us. I, I mean, this was a this was a powerful statement. Resegregation incur- occurred in part because of growing minority enrollments, but also because the courts have declared that school systems have moved from Dual to unitary status—that is, they are no longer segregated through any action of the school system. So, um, schools aren't proactively segregating as they once did, right? In no, the, they're not. It, they're
1: not proactively doing. But yeah, it's it's be, it's more complacency.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 more like a a, a lie of omission. They're not doing anything, which is which is now worsening the, the, the problem. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, my opinion is, is it just seems to be politically and socially for whatever the reason, there was a period of time in this country where there was the social political will to actively uh, tackle these kinds of things. And there just doesn't seem to be any will anymore to do that. At least, in governance uh, and in in greater society, I, I think, to your point, Casey, about governmental action or some kind of action, something, something would have to be done.
2: And I think, you know, and that's the interesting thing is, you know, so there was the urgency sort of um, post-Brown, you know, initially, of course, because of the decision, but then for decades on, because of the states and the counties and the municipalities that continued to resist any sort of desegregation whatsoever, right. regardless yeah. of what the law said, mm-hmm. you know. So then there was the period, I think, of um, of busing and and trying to achieve racial balance. Seventies and eighties. Yep. yep. And then I I do think that we're just in a period a bit a bit of complacency right now, um, where some of that urgency is gone. Um, and that doesn't, and I think that speaks to your point about a lack of political and social will to, to really address it. And I think some of it, to be quite honest, um, you know, it's happening and I'm not sure how aware people are of it. Like, for example, I was totally unaware that judges can make decisions to end busing. And so that that has directly led in the state of Florida to the resegregation of schools. Like, I was like, whoa, I had I really had no idea. So I think, you know... As long as some of that stuff continues to come out and be made public, then, you know, I think that can help amongst other things to kind of instill that sense of urgency. Um, they're like, all right, this is this is an issue. And, like, this is a problem. We dealt with it once. Or we tried to. And it, it just – it's not solved. Yeah.
0: And I, I mean I don't think it's – I don't know if it's ever been proven. But from the 1970s to the 1990s in this country, there there was – improvement of educational outcomes for all groups of kids. And I don't think that it's coincidence that that happened during the most aggressive period of, of desegregation and trying to ensure that kids from different racial, ethnic, socioeconomic backgrounds had the opportunity to go to school in, in schools where there was some semblance of uh, racial or socioeconomic balance. And now it seems to me that I think you're being, I think you're letting people off lightly, Mr. Craves. To agree, agree. Yeah. I I, oh, yeah. I think yeah. that there's a, a there's a a segment of the population in this country that actively does not want that. And no, so, so
1: let's and, and so resist. Who are, that. So who are the people that are resisting? Who are the people that are resisting? Let's <laughs> let's
0: put, let's put it on the table. Okay, you answer your own. No,
1: question.
3: who
0: are the people that are resisting? I, I think it could be lots of different people.
1: It's not a liberal or conservative thing. It's not a Democrat or Republican thing. It's it's a white thing.
0: It's a white thing. Yeah, no. And they're, I, I there are white
1: families yeah. who are in their they're part of the borough, and when they're when they have any kind of fear or any kind of possibility that their child might have to go to a school with mostly students who are of color. Right. That's when things get right. whether they're liberal or, right. or or conservative,
0: or that something might be taken away from them. Yes, yes.
1: And they and they have this irrational fear that because they're going to be with a student who is of Hispanic descent or black, that they're going to be in in dire
0: straits. Right. Well, when we when we talk to Mr. Linton, he's going to, I think he's going to inform us about the difference between equality mm-hmm. of outcomes or equality of inputs and equity. Mm-hmm. So to be continued on this on this discussion but i think we're going to have to watch this because i i do think it's going to be continue to be a growing issue nationally about the way that schools are changing yeah absolutely all right we are going to jump in with curtis linton in our next segment don't go away we'll be right back
2: We are very pleased and lucky to have Curtis Linton on tonight with us. Curtis is currently the CEO or Chief Education Officer of Curious School. Throughout his career, Curtis has documented the improvement efforts and best practices of the most successful schools across North America. Curtis has authored several books, including Equity 101, the Equity Framework, and co-authored Courageous Conversations About Race, which received the 2006 National Staff Development Council's Book of the Year. Curtis lives in Salt Lake City with his family and is joining us from the mountain time zone tonight, and we're really privileged to have him. And I think on a personal note from all of us, um, you know, Curtis from afar and from the books that he's written has played an integral role um, in shaping our work with equity and probably our own personal um, and school-based equity Absolutely. journeys. Yep. Definitely.
0: Yep. Especially mine as a, le- as a school leader had a big impact on me.
2: So, Curtis, we want to start with kind of the, the big, broad umbrella or big, broad strokes and uh, just ask you, how do you define equity in schools?
3: Well, the best way to differentiate between equity and equality as it relates to a school environment is the equality, the, the, you know, the, the effort towards equality, Brown versus Board, is about equality of resources at the entrance. So every child who shows up at school is going, to be, um, you know, is going to be able to access an equal number of resources. We've been stuck in this paradigm of equality, but equality, if everyone is treated the same with the resources in an equal system, then individual needs are not recognized within that. So equity shifts us. Towards considering the outcome. So rather than equal input, equity asks us to look for an equal outcome.
1: And so uh, uh, similarly linked to that, you know we've we, we've always we're always talking about from a leadership perspective, how are we going to implement equitable outcomes or equitable practices for teachers to make those outcomes more beneficial for students? What kind of successful frameworks have you seen? Put in place that helps students of color achieve. And one of the things that I wanted to, to kind of swing it back to was in, in the equity 101 you talk about culture, practice and you talk about leadership. Is, is that, would that be where you're, where you're going from from in terms of the framework?
3: Yeah, definitely because um, so, so let me give you some background on the equity framework. So the equity framework came from asking the question what commonalities would we see in schools? that have eliminated their achievement gaps. And what came out of that were these strong commonalities. Even, even though each of the schools had very unique learning cultures, different you know, communities and students that they were serving, um, and they were not always using the same language to describe their values. But one of the most common pieces out of this, and this is where that definition of equity came from, is that every single one of these schools had recognized the critical need to personalize the learning experience for each student. These were not schools which were, you know, where, where your strategies that you, in, that you apply in the classroom were what completely defined the teaching experience. They weren't schools that just depended upon a dynamic leader. They also weren't schools, which were just simply a, a beautiful and accepting, inclusive culture. They balanced these things.
1: One of the schools you focused on was Elmont High School, or is it Elmont Memorial High School?: Yeah, so you, you're talking about values. can you Can you elaborate a little bit on on what you mean by did you find that they had the values in place and it just it just happened to be in that situation that made them successful or no? Did, no, you have to, did you have not. to supplant that with something? You
3: no, know, it's it's deliberately crafting the values. And so it's saying if we really believe in creating a curriculum that reflects, you know, the students that it's culturally relevant, that's not just a value we espouse when we talk about it, It's a value that's actually lived in the classroom. And I think, I think this is where the conversation about equity has to go. I mean, it's really defining the work that I'm doing right now. It's thinking about applied equity, moving past the discourse and really saying, what evidence do we see in place that this is an equitable environment for students?
0: And it's, and, and it's not only evidence in outcomes Curtis, just correct me if i'm wrong it's just it's also evidence of how it's implemented um just the way structures change, the way teaching practices change. am I right there
3: exactly exactly in fact it's 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 a critical differentiator, and I was not clear in the way I described that. I jump at evidence, but I did not clarify I'm not actually talking about achievement data okay. I'm talking about evidence of practice, okay. If I'm going to see evidence of equity, I'm going to see students progressing at personalized rates through the curriculum. I'm going to see a class where, you know, they may be focusing on on um, you know, I uh, understanding rich text and, and deriving information from it, but the students aren't all using the same book. The students are engaged in a topic that they're personally interested in.
0: Got it. That 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 helps a lot. And I was I'm always curious about how we kind of like you said differentiate differentiate implementation versus outcomes and so that makes a lot of sense. Peter, go ahead. Yeah, well I mean mm-hmm. one of the
2: things I really appreciated you said is that it's not just a strategy or you know, a group of strategies. Because I know, you know, and I've been guilty of this many times, thinking that this this strategy is gonna be the, the panacea for everything that ails, you know, the universe basically. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the points that you make within within the book and in a lot of your work is that it's you know the framework it's it's many different pieces. Um, but I guess the the question I have is, you know, let's just say I work in a school and everything you're saying, uh, I'm like yes, yes, and I I have a lot of dedicated edu- educators that also want those same things. So what are some of the barriers that that prevent those outcomes from occurring? Because I know you know. Everywhere uh, there's lots of educators who want exactly what you're talking about, and yet we only see some of these successes, um, you know, in scattered spots, and it's not just more of like the widespread narrative uh, that we have right now about public education.
3: Yeah. So, so um, it, it's 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 a really good question. I think it's very relevant to you know today's time. Right? It's it's even something I've been writing a lot about lately, and it's it's the concept of autonomy, and. But, but, but I want to go beyond autonomy as just freedom to make my own decisions. And so think about where the control of the learning experience is centered. And so the closer you move towards seeing that control of the learning to the actual student, the more likely you are to have an equitable environment. So the further that the control of the learning moves away from the actual student, the less equitable it's going to be, and the more the learning is designed for that mass middle.
0: Okay, that's so I've got to follow up with this, Curtis, because uh, I was originally, I was trained as an elementary educator, and then... um, eventually became a middle school principal, having not worked professionally in a middle school before I became the principal of one, which is not something I'd recommend to anyone. Um, But Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I'm curious about school level school types. I'm big on uh, John Meyer's work on institutional structures. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think they kind of, it kind of gets to what you're saying that, we have these pervasive institutional structures, like, for example, departmentalization at the secondary level or stratification, homogeneous grouping. These things that that are pretty pervasive across schools. How, how do those fa- yeah. How do those factor into your work, uh, to the work that schools have to do and the work that you help them do in equity?
3: Well, and, and honestly, a lot of my work today is more in response to principals who are being thrust into more autonomous situations. Um, I'll be honest with you guys, and this is hard to admit, but uh, you know, over the last few years, I have what I've called my faith crisis in systems.
0: Ooh, tell us more. I, I, That's good.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just I can go into any city and find a dynamic school a school where I want to show up and I want to write about it, I want to do a case study about it, all the rest. I, I can't find districts doing the same type of work. I just can't. Interesting. And so so when, when I say just from a from a you know, purely qualitative perspective, um and I have not quantitatively proven this, but it but that's kind of in my my line of work in the future, um, schools are pulling it off districts aren't. And when schools pull it off, it's because they're making decisions at that local level. Right. Right. The principal working with the teachers, working with the community are making decisions in response to the needs of the students. So schools are where it's at. Yeah, that, it's it's
0: it's where it's at. Yeah, I I would I would agree. So, um, based on that, I I'm a huge fan of Sonia Nieto and Banks's work on multicultural education. And having been, ra- mm-hmm. having been raised uh, as a teacher and a leader in the 90s, um, multicultural education was a big part of my classroom teaching experience. It seems to me that in some form or fashion, equity in some ways seems to have replaced a focus on multicultural education. I'm curious uh, if you would talk about these two these two approaches and how they relate to one another. And also how they relate to the work that you do. Is multicultural education a big part of equity work?
3: So the the fourth force of privilege, um primacy, its counterforce is empathy. And so I have to bring up empathy in relation to multiculturalism. Because multiculturalism is in its traditional application rather devoid of empathy. Okay. It's rife with tolerance Ah, and and, and, very interesting and, and very accepting but it is it is looking at difference as um as an outlier so it's like okay we're going to shine light on the outlier but multiculturalism doesn't require the practitioner to normalize the difference it only asks them to acknowledge the difference.
1: That's like putting up a bul- putting up a difference. bulletin board with like diverse pictures on it.
3: Yeah. So so when you look at today and and here is the bridge to equity. So so the idea of cultural relevance. And so typically if I was to ask an educator define cultural relevance, what are the things you would look at most quickly? Majority of the educators will start talking about the heritage of the student. I have a student in my class whose parents are Latino immigrants, speak Spanish at home, they came from Guatemala, and let's say they came from Mexico. You know, common. Right? Okay, so cultural relevance is I'm going to represent some Mexican culture within my classroom. Okay. Okay. Uh, that is a misuse of cultural relevance. That's multiculturalism. Cultural relevance to the student is, let's say he lives in Rockville, right there in Montgomery County. Right. So, so you have a Latino male growing up in Rockville who speaks Spanish at home, whose parents are from Mexico. Cultural relevance to that particular student has little to do with Mexico, has everything to do with being a Latino male, speaking Spanish at home, growing up in Rockville, Maryland. Cultural relevance is about the lived daily realities of the student. And so as a teacher, if I'm making the learning culturally relevant for this particular student that I've identified, I have to know what that student is interested in. If I'm just bringing in artifacts from Mexico, I go to Mexico on vacation and I tell the student, Hey, I was in Mexico on vacation. Yeah. That the student looks at me glassy eyed. I've never been to Mexico.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That, that was pretty much multiculturalism in the nineties when I was a teacher. It was very much like that. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. And I, I think that that definitely solidifies the fact that those kind of relationships, you, you can't have a substantial amount of learning without those kind of relationships. So like, one of the things exactly. that, one of the things that we wanted to and this is this is kind of going to close this out and i want i want to um ask you a question that we're shifting gears a little bit, but what is one thing that like so we've had many conversations about um on this show about hiring and and finding the best talent and and how do you retain effective teachers? What's one thing thinking from the frame of equity in in hiring the best teachers in your school that you can share with us?
3: Yeah. So um, what I'm going to propose is that equity, different from so many other efforts, the building of equity is based upon studying success. And so I will more quickly convert my school environment into an equitable environment when I look at where students are succeeding. And And I consider the structures that are in place... So that we can replicate that success across the system. So when I think about hiring criteria, I'm going to hire based upon my most successful teachers. What are the things they tend to value? When I ask them, what defines you as a teacher, what do they answer? And so I have to do my own research on my school site and say, who are the teachers that I want to replicate?
0: That That makes sense. Yeah, well, that's that's brilliant. I I was a principal for 10 years, and now I'm kind of kicking myself because I I, I never did that, Curtis. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, I'm totally stealing that question. What defines you as a teacher?
2: Outstanding. I'm like, let's do interviews tomorrow. (laughs) That's great. All right, good. Okay. You know, once again, we'd like to thank you and uh, invite people to check out curiousschool.org. It sounds like you guys have a lot of really interesting work going on um, that's focused around the child as the learner. So. Thank you so much, Curtis, yep. and we will catch up with you next time. Awesome. Thank you much. All right. That was pretty great. Awesome. Yeah. That was awesome. Very good interview. Um, so there was a lot in there. Dare I say?
1: Let's unpack it. Let's
2: unpack it. Because that's be what you did. Awesome. So there's a couple points that I wanted to bring up and uh kind of recap and then get your guys' thought on it. So one of the things that Curtis talked about was the commonalities between schools that reduce achievement gaps. So he talked about recognizing um, the need to personalize the learning for the students. And so each student is really getting what they need, which is certainly a lofty goal. Um, and obviously, the larger the school size gets, the harder it becomes to personalize that learning for students. Um, and he also talked about when when schools are not experiencing success, one of the things that you see is a lack of autonomy for students. And then the control of the learning experience really exists outside of the student and doesn't exist within them and for them. So I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that about, you know, personalizing learning for students, what it looks like, what it is, what you think its effect is. Um, And then that second one, which I I don't think I've really thought about as as much uh, the autonomy for the students and the control of the learning experience. Because that's certainly, um, again, you know, I guess to paraphrase myself, a lofty goal um, to have the students control their own learning experience
1: uh, ultimately the, what what Curtis was saying was the further the control goes away from the student, the less equitable outcomes there will be or the less equitable that particular environment will be so we can use it a simple example as if a teacher's lecturing in a middle school or high school environment you can you can imagine that in general that 's not going to be an engaging class it 's not going to be the, the, the outcomes of that particular learning in that class is uh, they're not going to be high. Um,
2: but so I'm, I'm going to be devil's advocate. So there are no situations when teachers should be lecturing.
1: No, ever, never, ever, never. It's the it's the it's the lowest learning modality. It's the least. Effective learning modalities. Listen. Boo. Yeah. It's garbage. <laughs> you know why you're saying boo? Because it's easy. It's so easy. It's so easy. So let's lecture because people want to hear what I have to say. Let's lecture. You know, I you know and I've heard recently in, in some schools, they the kids like my stories. <laughs> they like my stories it it like my blood literally boils and i just want to actually just die
0: in front of them aren't you aren't you killing a little bit of the inspiring part of of what teachers do if they don't i mean what's wrong with there
2: was telling, a whole movie called stand and deliver oh it's so good let's let's listen to what? my stories
0: what's what's wrong with telling compelling stories that get kids inspired and excited about learning
1: M- most people and most teachers can't do that
3: <laughs> they
1: can't. <laughs> they can't do that. They cannot do that Boy, because they're that not willing you to put have in the a, effort. You, they're not. They. A lot of them are, aren't willing to put in the effort. You are
0: glass half empty. <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> he's I'm house house and half full guy. I'm, I'm talking time. about folks
1: who lecture and folks who think that their lectures. You know, this is it. That that's why I'm not planning for differentiation. You know, my kids that are reading at a second grade reading level, they're totally going to be into this lesson because I'm going to tell them an awesome story. <laughs> All right, so
2: so follow up
0: on anyway. that. So, okay, so, so what, so what I, I, I was what I was going to add to this yes. before he said that all lecturing was bad was that to Casey's point, a lecture I would say personalizing learning, or as you said, Casey, that distance between the learning and the kid um, that it becomes further and further away as they go through school. I would. I would cite the example of whether a kid can see themselves in the curriculum. So if you can't see yourself in the curriculum, your background, where you come from, who you are, then you feel really far away from what it is you're learning. Uh, I, think that's a, I think that's a big deal. And then the other thing that I would mention um, is that I do think that we know in secondary schools that a sense of alienation in kids grows that they feel more and more disconnected from the institution that they're in and that can be because of the way teaching transpires it can be the curriculum it can be just kind of those formal bureaucratic structures that separate kids from adults um so i there's there's a there's a lot of things that i think instead of make learning more personalized as kids get older it becomes more depersonalized
2: yeah and I- <laughs> So I I had a discussion with a colleague recently in going – this is like going way back to maybe it was episode one or two when we were talking about algebra and whether we should do away with algebra. And he was kind of like, well, then why don't we just make school into camp? And everybody gets just (laughs) to choose what they want to do and it's the fun activity that that they want to do. But just in the context of what you were talking about, Robbie, which by the way, yes, I was like, yes, let's do that. Let's make school camp. (laughs) But in the context of what you were saying, um, in depersonalizing and the sense of alienation, um, and, and it's—I know it's easier just to go and look at curriculum and say, "Look at the curriculum," and you know the kids don't see themselves or the skills or the translation to real life right. and all that. And and to be honest, I do buy that—it's that
0: relevance thing.
2: Yeah, and the more and more that I'm in education, you know. The more, I guess, I I question, like, man, like, is what we're teaching them and the skills that we're teaching them, like, how much is this going to help them? And I don't don't have an answer to that. I'm not, like, down on it or anything. But it's just I've been asking myself that question more recently of, like, all right, in the workforce, it's this wide. My hands are very wide right now. You can't see them. Very wide. Very. Very wide. And in school, it's this wide. Right. Envision my fingers very close together. Very close. So, you know, how can we... How can we broaden those learning experiences so that they don't feel that sense of alienation? So they do feel like I am choosing to learn something. That yes, the teacher is like also making me learn that I have to learn, but I'm also choosing to learn this because I want to learn it because I th- I think I can use this because I see something I get something out of this. Yeah, you know, today, tomorrow, next week, whatever.
1: Absolutely. And, and there's two. Const- there's one constraint that comes to my mind is where we have curriculum that's. Me, or not in the curriculum, but the standards by which students are learning thats coming from the state, and the state says that they have to learn, you know, uh, the social implications of feudal Europe for students who, you know, are, are coming from El Salvador or they're, they're coming from another country, it's, it's, n- it's not inherently easy to make those connections personal for kids. No. You but can, you but can there's do nothing
0: it. inherently wrong about learning about fe- feudal Europe.
1: I'm not saying there is, but what I'm saying is that in, in, initially, if you're a first-year teacher, you don't necess- or even a fifth-year teacher, you don't necessarily know how to make those connections with kids, right? With, with regard to like something like medieval Europe, but it is it is on the teacher to make those connections.
2: And I guess I'm going to contradict myself because then I just thought of something else he says. <laughs> I was going to do everything, but you no, know, he did talk about because um, when you bring up El Salvador, and he talked about. Cultural relevancy and the need to meet the kids like where they are, the lived daily reality of the student. Right. Yeah. You know, and that being is a sort of inroad to make some of those connections between seemingly like um, disconnected maybe curriculum or ideas or skills to students. You know, you know them and, and you connect to like their actual lived daily life.
0: Yeah. And he, I mean, he mentioned that when I asked him about the difference or the overlap in multicultural education and cultural proficiency or equity, he mentioned that um, multiculturalism is kind of ripe with tolerance but devoid of empathy.
1: That was that was my, probably my favorite quote yeah. right there. Yeah,
0: yeah. and that, that to your point, Peter, understanding kids, understanding their, their daily realities, uh, an El Salvador child who has grown up here uh, obviously – they're connected to their background, but their childhood is here, so what is and what you- they
2: come in and see every
0: day Correct. is here right. right so what's unique about right. the blending of their background with their with their lived experience in in our schools and in our our communities and
1: I, I think the word empathy is the one that sticks out to me is we we may never actually be able to experience or know what the, those children are going through or what they have gone through, but We need to be empathetic to what they have gone through. And a a lot of teachers, and I've been in there, I'm I'm included in that, don't necessarily understand or know because of whatever reason, because the counselors know that this X, Y, and Z happened or the assistant principal knows that this parent is not around for whatever reason. So the empathy piece is something that I think takes teachers – either time on their own to do it or they need to be coached to do it because they need to understand where their kids are coming from. Well,
0: I'll give you an example of when I was a young elementary school principal many moons ago. Um, (laughs) The third grade team that I was working with was about to start uh, a chapter book as we call them.
1: Not the Apple project, right?
0: Have either of you ever heard of Sarah Plain and Tall? Of course. Okay. No. Well, I basically told them in in not a very refined leadership kind of way in a school that was uh, mostly kids of color, mostly African-American, that uh, if they made our third grade boys read Sarah Plain and Tall – they would all be in in professional trouble <laughs> uh, because I I just and they got really upset with me Yeah. Um, because they said you it's know, such a great book and, and it has universal <laughs> themes yeah. and it's and I to your point Peter about the kid who is of a different background and is living here I just didn't think Sarah Plain and Tall spoke to the kids maybe I'm sure it spoke to a lot of kids but I just thought let's find something a little bit more relevant. Than Sarah Plain and Tall. Um, no offense to Sarah Plain and Tall, and to the kids that like it, and to the teachers that like teaching it. But uh, I think I think we can work harder at making our classrooms more relevant to the kids that are in them.
2: And it's you know, and it's, and I guess it's not to diminish the the difficulty of it because. So I'm thinking, right? So we talked about, and um, Curtis talked about. You know, you go on a trip to Mexico and there's a kid from Mexico in your class and you're like, look at this, you know, little cool trinket I have. And like, we made a connection, see? And it's like, okay. So there's kind of like one extreme example of not good, oof, oof. right? Yeah. But then, I mean, th- there's a whole continuum of other things that you can do. And I'm, I, for me, I'm kind of like, well, like what's good and what's bad in there? Like right. what is me identifying and empathizing and what is me patronizing, because there's definitely, I think, those two, um, two kind of categories rub up against each other quite a bit when you're trying to empathize and understand a student, and you're trying to probably make some assumptions about what they think is important or how they live, if it's something, you know, whatever. So it could end up coming across as patronizing
0: as well. What did, what did Curtis say about the barriers to equity in schools?
1: You threw out a question <laughs> that I didn't know how to answer. Can I, can I just actually go on Peter's okay, point really Don't quick? answer my question. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. So I listened to uh, Angela Watson's podcast, Truth for Teachers, and it was basically uh, the, the episode that I listened to was about uh, beliefs that damage teacher relationships with black male students. Right. And one of the things that she talked about with her guest, and I highly recommend you listen to it, episode 106. Um, it's a short episode, but it talks about, or they were talking about things that, like you said, Peter, patronize students. There was a time when, you know, having students do raps in class yeah. to, to to connect with kids. I'm sure that I'm sure
0: that still goes on.
1: It does, and I think they think that they're connecting with kids, right. and they're not. Or, or when a teacher, you know, mistakenly believes a new teacher believes that they need to talk in the vernacular of the, the students in, of whom they teach. And that's not necessarily – you're pandering to kids. You're not actually teaching them uh, in ways that are culturally sensitive or culturally responsive.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. By the way, before we finish up, Mm -hmm. I was in a fourth-grade classroom the other day during – uh, reading language arts during the reading language arts block, and the kids were writing scripts for their own podcasts.
3: Whoa, that is awesome! Is not that good? That's
0: have, you, great. have you seen that yet? Somebody doing that using writing writing scripts for podcasts. I haven't seen writing
1: scripts. I've seen teachers use as like anchor activities to cr- they can create a podcast episode based on whatever really? topic they're doing. That's pretty awesome. I'd like to see what that In- so- or hear what that sounds like.
2: Unless we have a question go unanswered for you, Robbie. I, I don't think he really talked about, oh, this is why schools don't have equitable practices, or this is why schools aren't equitable. If you recall, I think he talked about equity is not deficit thinking, it's inherently positive thinking and right, yeah. focusing on things that schools do well. And so, when he talks about hiring or how to improve a school or whatever, he said, to focus on, look around your school and what are what is? What are you doing well? That what are a, teachers that doing well? That was well? a powerful statement. Take yes. that, and yeah. that is your answer. It's right. not. Yeah. It's not in a can. It's, it's not in a book. It. It's right. you know what you're doing and what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. Let me take this, that, and who so. are the equity warriors right.
0: in your midst that are doing the work right. that are not only not only um, equitable in their teaching, but they're also getting excellent outcomes.
1: He also um, he also talked about the fact that. Um, uh, like when you're thinking about the barriers to equitable schools, it comes down to, and I completely lost my thought. That's really <laughs> awesome. It's really great. So
0: first of all, he totally didn't answer the question that I asked. And then he just had a a, A brain fart. Because you just kept talking. And
2: I had a thought and I was ready to go.
1: And I didn't want to interrupt you because you're my former principal. So I wanted to be nice and respectful. Well, it didn't work.
0: that was a great segment. Curtis Linton was an awesome guest. Uh, We hope the audience learned as much as we did. And we hope that it sparks thoughts and good discussion amongst you all out there in your education work. Uh, he just made a face. that He just had the thought. Do you want to say it before we go?
1: That, you might be able to speak to this better than I can. But oh, in terms of this, the school versus district implementation of equity.
0: Okay, we are up against a break, oh, and, yeah. and we will save that for next show. Okay. Okay. Right. Actually, qu-
1: we're probably going to forget
0: it. so yeah. That's fine. Right, write the question down. <laughs> no. Anyway, I think Peter's writing it. Thanks. Thanks again to Curtis Linton. We much appreciate him coming on. Ed's not dead, and we will get him back in the future. But for our last segment, Mr. Siddons. Yeah,
1: I found some quiz questions that you might not know. Okay.
0: <laughs> quiz show time. I'm completely unprepared for this. On one of these, I think we might actually get one. I don't know if anybody's
2: ever gotten a question right, by the way.
1: oh,
0: Remember? No, I killed it. Well, yeah, yeah, it was one. not exact. It was, but it was close. Very, yes. close. very close. Yes. Okay,
1: go ahead, Mr. Sids. I think the one that you got correct was... Uh, China. Uh, yep. Spending the most time on home. China. Money. China. Hey... Um, all right, are you ready for the first one? Where do fifty percent of the world's out-of-school children live? It's a region of a continent.
0: Out of school? Yes. What, what <laughs> is, okay. First of all, I've already I've already failed on this one. What does out-of-school children mean? I imagine it means
1: that they're not in school.
0: Oh, kids that are not being educated. That would make I'm assuming. Okay. Yes.
2: Uh, I'm gonna go with East Africa because Somalia. Because of Somalia.
0: Okay. I am going to go with... Um, what was the question again?
1: <laughs> I'm going to skip it. <laughs> no, just ask it Where again. Where do 50% of the world's out-of-school children live? Region of a continent. 50%? 50% of the world's out-of-school children.
0: So it has to be... You just... Did you choose a... Did you he choose said, a, said Africa. He chose a region. He didn't... That's, sh-
1: well, yeah. he's, he's saying yes. a region, which is a correct guess
0: okay i will say uh south america okay the correct answer is sub-saharan
1: africa Ooh, that's a yes. very big region it's a very big region it's like big, 200 big, big, yeah. million people are. so okay. uh number uh number two <laughs> we were not you were, you were, you were relatively close yeah. on in which country is knitting taught in school as part of the children's
2: curriculum the united states no that is super easy it's norway <laughs> Very close. Iceland. It did. Come on. It had Come to be on. one of those Scandinavian countries. Number
1: three. Which country has the most graduates in engineering, manufacturing, and construction in the world? Which country? You're reading these questions exceedingly fast. Which? Which country has
3: the <laughs> most graduates in engineering, manufacturing, and construction in the world? Oh, oh that's we? an
0: easy one. India.
2: I was going to say India. Russia. Whoa! Yes. Okay. That's
0: not in we are zero for three. Can okay. I have one more? One more?
1: Yeah, one more. Right. I'm get this Which one right. country has the most inactive post-secondary educated people in the world? So, it was that active or inactive? Inactive. Thirty-seven percent of this country, they are not currently working, but they have qualifications. Japan Greece. So you said Japan, Pete? Greece. Greece. Correct answer. Saudi Arabia. No. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: Wasn't even close. They're not even Jeez. using
1: that that brain of theirs, man. Wow.
0: Uh, women in Saudi Arabia, big news. Yeah, Driving. Driving. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. That's that's, that's, that's cool. That is a great development. Very good. For women's rights across the world. A little late. Yeah, a little late. <laughs> it was a great show, fellas. Once again, thanks to Curtis Linton for joining us as our special guest. It was very gracious of him to come on our show. It was, in, in our first part of our equity series. As always, you can reach me at rw. I'm
1: at chsiddens.
2: And at Mr. Peter V. Crable, all
0: one word. No, it's just Peter Krabel. <laughs> don't, don't feel kind of this. <laughs> He's a liar. And at Ed's no, Not else. Dead PC.
1: We are on Facebook and you can find us on LinkedIn, all of our profiles. Yep. Ooh.
0: Please, please, please tell your friends, tell your colleagues, tell everybody you know about Ed's Not Dead. Tell your grandparents. We really appreciate our loyal audience. Thanks for Staying with us. Are at- they audience or are they listeners? Listeners. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks again.